Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. A pleasure to be with you guys again. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 here in just a moment. And if you um, are visiting or new here this morning, we've been doing a little mini-series called Standing on Their Shoulders. And two weeks ago, we looked at the life of Paul and some things he taught us in Philippians. Then last week, we looked at King David and some things, some ways we could stand on his shoulders and placing our faith in God and trusting him, knowing the battle belongs to him. And this morning, as we look at Luke chapter seven, we're going to look at a woman. I'm not trying to be goofy or funny by just saying a woman, but the text doesn't tell us her name. And so uh, a lot of scholars believe it may have been Mary Magdalene. And I think that's very probable, but just to play it safe, we're going to stick with just a woman uh, since it doesn't give us her name. I'm excited to dive in with you guys one last time, would y'all pray with me and then we'll begin to study God's word. Lord, we are again grateful just to be here. God, thank you for the Bible and its authority and its trustworthiness and that is the foundation of our lives. God, thank you for the blood of Jesus that we sang about. It gives us hope and forgiveness and salvation. Lord, I pray that as we study, you would just draw our attention to yourself. If you would, with your head bowed and eyes still closed, just ask God to speak to you. Take a moment to ask him to do what he needs to do in your life this morning. God, we look forward to what you're gonna do and we're grateful for the way you speak to us through your word. It's your name we pray, amen. I think I've actually shared this story in here before, but that's okay, um, because it fits really well with the text. But I'll lead, in it, lead to it this way. You ever have those people in your life who they're just super spiritual. Now, being spiritual is a good thing. What I mean by super spiritual, they're always trying to one-up you with how spiritual they are. Maybe they they always have a theological question or they're gonna try to make you feel bad because you're not as good of a Christian as them. Do you you know those people in your life? And if you're not sure, maybe you are that person. I don't know. But it it can be difficult to be around those people sometimes, even though I think the majority of their time, they're, they're very well-meaning. One of my friends in college was like that. His name was Ray, and he, he fits that bill in that he, he just extra passionate, extra zealous, and sometimes a little super spiritual. And so when, when people would see him coming, me included, we sometimes would kind of back away because like, oh man, what is Ray going to say? Well, one particular day, my friend Robbie and I were hanging out in the commons, kind of this green grassy area in the middle of the university, and we saw Ray coming. So we knew it was about to go down. (laughs) He was going to have some sort of spiritual comment. So he came up, and I don't know why that day he chose my friend Robbie to be the victim and not me, but praise God he did. And Ray came up to Robbie. He had an incredible accent. I I will try to replicate it even though I can't do a good job. But Ray came up to Robbie and he said, Robbie, do you love God? To which Robbie replied, "I, I do. I do, Ray. 
Ray said. No, 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 Robbie. Do you love God? Robbie replied, I, I, I do. I do, Ray. Then Ray upped it a, a little bit. No, no, Robbie, do you love God? To which Robbie replied, I don't know. <laughs> I think so. I hope so. You're making me doubt it. Could you stop? You're killing me, man. <laughs> I, I share that because I want to ask you. It's not the question we want to ask this morning, but it's taking us where we want to go. I want to ask, do you love God? Do you love God? You know, that's the reason I said it's not the question. One, it's not the question I think that the text necessarily presents this morning. And I think asking the question, do you love God? It's a fair question for sure. Jesus says the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's a totally fair question. But I think sometimes love for God can feel a little bit subjective, right? Because sometimes our love it wanes a little bit. It goes up and down like roller coaster, right? That's how our love can feel sometimes. So I think it may be a better question. And I think the question the text maybe ask a little more clearly is what leads to love for Jesus? What leads to love for Jesus? If we're going to stand on this woman's shoulders, we're going to see in a moment it is unpacked. I don't want to give the thunder away. Still, still her thunder, but, um, we're going to see if we're going to stand on her shoulders, we need to see and understand what leads to love for Jesus. Now, just a, two kind of quick housekeeping things before we get into the text. The one the way I'm going to approach this, we're going to, I'm not going to give the answer yet until we get through the text. And I think I won't even have to tell it to you. The text speaks for itself. It's so simple and clear. You'll probably be able to write it down before I even give you the answer once we walk through the text. And then after we walk through the text, there's, I think, four questions that kind of spin out of this text that we need to ask and consider. That said, for kind of context of, of where this passage is, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's begun to gain some acclaim. People are beginning to follow him. He has kind of a following as he goes and preaches and speaks. But he's also beginning to be misunderstood. If you look at chapter 7, verse uh, 33, Jesus is talking and he's talking about this generation or the generation he was ministering to. And he says, for John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus was already being misunderstood. Now with that context, let's dive into verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. I hate to interrupt a perfectly good narrative, but because of the cultural difference in 2,000 years, a little bit of context here, even though most of you probably already got it. Who's a Pharisee? What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee, they where some, you could almost refer to them as they had their doctorate in obeying the law. They were very moral, very religious. And to be fair to the Pharisees, I think a lot of it was good hearted. They wanted to please God. They were very passionate about God and morality and religion. But sometimes, like my super spiritual friends, that can lead you to being a little legalistic too, can it? Being self-righteous. 
And the Pharisees were known, if you read the gospels, you know, that's what they were kind of known for. Jesus told them about that. They, they uh, painted the outside to make it look good, but inside they were just graves, right? To unpack the idea a little bit to what the Pharisees did, they were fence builders. What do I mean by fence builders? So they would take things that God said in his law, very clear things, but then to be sure they didn't break any of his laws, they would build fences around it. Now, let me explain how we do that even today. Just hang in there. So I know we're Baptist church, but hang in there. It is not wrong. You cannot say objectively in every situation that it is always wrong to dance. What? So like if I'm, if I'm at home and I'm dancing with my three-year-old daughter and cutting a rug and you say that's wrong, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, right, there's nothing wrong with that. You cannot point to the Bible and say that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's good. All right, yeah, it's, it's not wrong. Now, now, let's be clear. There are some dance moves you shouldn't do, right? I mean, there are some dance moves, yeah. I, I get why we're cautious about it, but like, yeah, there's some things you shouldn't do, but you can't just say it's all wrong. But we, I think the intention has been good, but believers in America, we, we've kind of sometimes in the past have built this fence, meaning, give you an example. God's word clearly says, undoubtedly, it clearly says that it's wrong to get drunk. We know that. That's what the Bible says. It's wrong to get drunk. And in a desire, I think a good desire to, to obey God's word, then we say, well, you know what? I, we're not going to go to clubs or bars because if you do that, you may go get drunk. And I'm totally, totally on board with that. But then we build another fence and we say, but you know what? You probably shouldn't even dance because if you dance, you may be tempted to go to a club. And if you go to a club, then you're going to go drink. You see how you build a fence there? Can that fence be helpful? Sure. But when you start acting like the fence is God's law, now we're in trouble. You with me? Now, now we're being legalistic. And that's what the Pharisees were, were known for doing is, is they're passionate about God, but then at the same time, they would add these extra laws to what God said and act like those fences were actually God's law. And they became legalistic. And the more you become legalistic, all focused about the rules, you lose focus on relationship. So Jesus is at Simon's house, this Pharisee, and it says they reclined at the table. We don't know exactly why uh, Simon invited Jesus to his house. The, the text would, as we read here in a few minutes, would seem to indicate that Simon was trying to size Jesus up and see what he really thought of Jesus. But whatever the case, it's kind of a banquet setting. The fact that they were reclining and not sitting at chairs indicates this was a banquet. So because they're reclining, the picture there is it's a low table and they're on some sort of couch and they, they, uh, their head, their upper body is towards the table. They lean on their left elbow and their feet are back away from them. That's important for where we're gonna be in the story in just a moment. So there they are sitting at the table reclining. It says, Verse 37, a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. One last piece of setting, context. In those days, and this, I guess we have similar versions of this today, but in those days, you could have a, a banquet, you could have um, 
a party, so to speak, and you would have some famous people there to come and have conversations. So in this case, you've got Jesus, you've got the Pharisee, maybe a few other high-ranking leaders that are there talking and having discussion. And people, outsiders, were allowed to come into where the banquet was and stand along the wall to, to listen to the conversation. They were not really supposed to come close to those gathered at the table, but they were welcome to come in and observe from a distance. You say, why in the world would you want to do that? Well, just to give us some context and identify a little bit, if this Friday at lunchtime out in the commons, Dak Prescott, Greg Abbott, Condoleezza Rice, Taylor Swift, and David Wilson were going to have lunch out there, I bet some of y'all would come, right? I would, I would come. I may even pay to enter, like just to come and sit and listen to what they're going to talk about. So people would do that. Again, a little hyperbole there, but you get the picture. They would come and, and, and sit back and, and watch and listen. So it says this woman, a sinner, scholars believe probably come, a lady had been a prostitute, an adulteress. She found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. So like a lot of other people, she comes in and she kind of stands against the wall. But you know what? She, she doesn't just stand against the wall. It says, verse 38, or excuse me, verse 37, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Whoa. Talk about breaking protocol, right? She, she's overwhelmed with emotion. And she has this alabaster jar. She intended to come and anoint Jesus. She didn't, you don't just, in those days, and I guess today too, you don't just carry around an alabaster jar. This was costly and you can't just open it up and pour a little bit out. You'd have to break it open. So it's kind of one of those where you're gonna pour it all out because you were going all in to use it. So she has this alabaster jar and she sees Jesus and she can't contain herself. She comes behind him and begins to weep. And whether she intended from the beginning to anoint his feet or to anoint his head, I don't know, but she comes and she begins to weep. And as the tears fall on his feet, she begins to wash his feet with her tears and, and wipes his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with this costly perfume. She's overcome with emotion. She's overcome with our word love. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him. She's a sinner. Now I know you've never thought things like that to yourself, right? You know, we, we all have those thoughts sometimes with judgmental thoughts. And it's, it's uh, sobering to think that God is aware of our thoughts. But imagine you have a thought like that. This woman's a sinner. What, Jesus must not be a prophet. And then for Jesus to verbally say, Simon, I have something to say to you. It says that Simon said, say it, teacher. And I might insert gulp. <laughs> like, who? Jesus tells a story. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
So just to put this maybe in modern terms, two people owe a creditor money, they're in debt. If they made $45,000, if they each made a $45,000 annual salary, it would be like one owing 7,500, somewhere in there, dollars, and the other person owing $65,000, more than a year's work. Verse 42, since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Now, maybe I missed something. Did Jesus ask a hard math question? Did he? No. Which, which one is better, Simon? To be forgiven $65,000 or to be given $7,500? Which one is better? Which one will, will stir up more love? And Simon says, I suppose the one he forgave more. Suppose? Do you see the reluctance in his heart to, to acknowledge what's going on here? Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, verse 44. Don't miss that detail Luke gives us. Get this, it says, turning to the woman, he said to Simon. So get this picture. If, if Jesus is standing here and the woman's over here, he's looking at the woman, full of grace and compassion in, in his eyes, and he's, but he's speaking to Simon. Love this picture. He says, looking at the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, which would have been customary for the day. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which would have been customary in that time. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she, which would have been cheap and easy to get, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. Why did she love much? Because her sins have been forgiven. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Really simple. What leads to love for Jesus? Experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. That's what leads to love for Jesus, experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. I think it's super simple. It jumps out of the text. What leads to love for Jesus? What stirs that love for Jesus? Experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. And I love this. I pointed it out a second, a second ago when I was reading it, but I love the clarity he gives. He says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. So Jesus clarifies She's not been forgiven of her sins because she came in here and showed me such love and, and washed my feet with her hair. No, she did that because she's been forgiven. He explains which comes first. He's not that, oh, she did all this good stuff. She worshiped me, now I forgive her. He says, no, I forgave her and her response was overflowing, uncontrolled love. And he says, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. So it, 
another clarifier here. If we take that too literally, too woodenly, so to speak, in grammar, we could walk away going, so the one who is forgiven little loves little. You know what? I want to love Jesus more, so I'm just going to go out and sin a bunch. <laughs> right? if, if that was the case, then we'd say, you know what, church? Sermon's over. Y'all go sin like crazy. I'll see y'all at six o'clock, and we're going to have church. Like, that's, that's ridiculous, right? That's clearly not what he's saying. The idea is, when you are full of this self-righteous, think you have it all together, man, I'm pretty good. There's not much I need to be forgiven of. Why would you love Jesus much? If you have this grandiose idea of who you are and how good you are, then you're gonna have a little idea of who Jesus is. It says, whoever's been forgiven much, who knows they're a broken, sinful person, they will love much. Experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus leads to love for Jesus. Now, I think, simple idea, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, this text really stirs out four questions we have to ask that are really rooted in the text and kind of, I think, jump out of the text. The first one that we all need to consider is this, first question. Am I forgiven? Let me ask you, are you forgiven? I, if you're not sure how to answer that, I think the people in this story provide a little help. Simon was, in our terms, a good man. Like, if he walked in today, we'd be like, Simon, how's it going? Or like, we'd probably be very formal because he's a Pharisee. How you doing? Good to see you, lad. Like, lad, he's not British, sorry. <laughs> we, we, would, we would be impressed with his spirituality. We'd be impressed with his ability to, to do the right things. We would be impressed with the scripture he had memorized. We would be impressed with how he ties. Man, Simon, he sure does tithe. Like, I know we don't keep a record around here, but did you see what he dropped in the bucket? Woo! Like, we would be so impressed. But you know what he would lack? Love for God. See, being a person who tries to be a good person is not the same as being forgiven. Like, obeying all these rules which, by the way, newsflash, the Bible teaches you can't obey all of them. You cannot. But obeying a bunch of rules is not the same as being forgiven. There'll be a lot of, quote, good people in hell one day because they did not know the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. They did not realize that they couldn't be good enough on their own. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I think, I think Simon portrays that in this passage of, he, he's honoring Jesus, Jesus is at his, at his house, but his heart was far from Jesus. You know, there's some irony here, I think that Luke kind of points out to us in the way that he wrote this. In verse, uh, even before this, but certainly in verse 34, Jesus says that people were, were accusing Jesus of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they were trying to mock Jesus and say, Jesus, you hang out with sinners. You eat with sinners. You're a bad person. And then Luke shows us the way he arranges it. The very next verse tells us that Simon was eating with Jesus. So according to a lot of people's accusations of Jesus, what does that make Simon? A sinner. <laughs> Don't miss the irony there. Simon was a sinner. 
All of us are sinners in need of God's forgiving mercy and grace. I love what Dane Ortland says. He's an author. I'll, I'm gonna quote his book later and I'll, I'll speak more of that in a minute. But he says that one of the most beautiful but counterintuitive things about Christianity is that we're made right with God. So a, a bigger word there is justified, brought into a right relationship with God. Not when we get our act together because you can't but rather when you collapse and confess that you'll never get it together. That's when you're brought into a right relationship with God. That's when you are forgiven. And experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus leads to what? Love for Jesus. So friend, are you forgiven? Not are you a good person, are you forgiven? You know, that said, even as a believer, Sometimes that love for Christ can be kind of stifled, can it? I know I'm not the only one. Sometimes we come to worship, not that this is the measure of worship or love for Jesus, but sometimes we come to worship and you're like me and you're thinking, I'm just not feeling it today. Like, of course, then Jerry Newman hits a high note that like is through the roof. And I'm like, okay, I'm kind of feeling it now, right? But um, sometimes like you're, you go to read your Bible and you're just like, Man, I'm just having a hard time. The love for Jesus is not flowing. I think based on the simple biblical idea that forgiveness, experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus leads to love for Jesus and looking at these people, I think there are three follow-up questions that come after am I forgiven that believers should consider. So if, as a believer, you say, yes, I know I'm forgiven. I've experienced the grace, the mercy of Jesus. I know I'm forgiven but that love is stagnant. It's not really blossoming right now. Three questions to consider. So continuing with our four. The first one was, am I forgiven? The second one is, am I denying or minimizing sin? Am I denying or minimizing sin? So if being forgiven little leads to little love, when I make little of my sin, I should not be surprised that I love Jesus little. Track with that? If being forgiven little, which we're all forgiven a lot, but if, my, if in my mind I'm forgiven of a little, then I'm gonna love Jesus little. You don't maximize your love for Jesus by acting like you have it together. You don't maximize and stoke the fire, the flame of your love for Jesus by acting like you're perfect, but rather by recognizing only Jesus is perfect. A lot of us have this, this kind of... Um, Band-aid view of Christianity, what I mean is, is like, well, you know, I was pretty good. I had a little scar of sin, a little cut of sin in my life. Outside of that, I was pretty good. Jesus put a band-aid on me and now I'm better. So Jesus is pretty cool. Or we had this idea of, you know, I had a little, little rust on my leg of sin and Jesus polished that out and now I'm better. And so Jesus is pretty cool. That is an unbiblical view of salvation. The biblical view is Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our sins and Jesus performed a miracle and raised us up to life through his death and resurrection. When I realized not just, oh, Jesus kind of cleaned me up. No, rather, I was dead and now I'm alive because of Jesus. That leads to love. Don't minimize your sin. Don't act like you have it all together. I love what Olin Stubbs says. He says, a small view of our sin always leads to a small view of our Savior. Many of you know that the, are, you're familiar with the Bible commentator, Matthew Henry. He said, there's no such thing as a small God. 
Because we don't have, sorry, let me rephrase that, butchered that. There's no such thing as a small sin because there's no such thing as a small God to sin against. Does that make sense that time? <laughs> there's no such thing as small sin because God is a great, majestic, holy God. And when we sin against him, it's always a big deal. So in light of that, knowing our sin is a big, big deal and yet he still forgave us should blow our minds. God has forgiven me through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you denying or minimizing sin? If you are, that's gonna stifle your love for Christ. Some of you, I think you're kind of on the flip side of that spectrum. This is kind of where I would tend to fall in most of the time. The third question is, am I getting my glance and my gaze right? Am I getting my glance and my gaze right? What in the world do I mean by that? So denying your sin and minimizing it is not helpful to stir up love for Christ. But also, obsessing over your sin is not gonna help stir up love for Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that obsessing over your sin and Brandon, you doing it yourself is the author and perfecter of your faith. What does it say? Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So it's about me getting my eyes off of myself and on to Jesus. So glancing, yes, recognizing I'm a sinful, broken person, glancing at that, but then choosing to focus my attention on Jesus who has forgiven me. Glance at your sin, recognize, yeah, I'm a mess, but then gaze at Jesus. We talked about last week, don't, don't navel gaze, right? We tend to obsess and man, I'm the worst. I love in this story, this woman was not at her house sulking about how bad her past was and how messed up she was. No, this woman was at the feet of Jesus worshiping. Her focus was on Jesus. Yes, recognize your brokenness, but recognize how beautiful and incredible and wonderful Jesus is. Glance at your sin, gaze at Jesus Christ. And as we gaze at him and fix our eyes on him, I think it leads to this fourth question. As I begin to see him, here's the fourth question. Am I living in light of who Jesus is? Am I living in light of who Jesus is? Simon, one, I don't think he understood who Jesus was and certainly didn't want to. This woman clearly at some point had encountered Jesus, whether that, was, whether that was hearing him preach at the Sermon on the Mount, whether that was walking the roads of Israel. At some point, this woman had met Jesus and it had changed her life. She knew she had been forgiven. She knew not just what, what Jesus was gonna do, but, but who he was. That, like what he said in Luke chapter five, where Jesus says, hey, look, it's not the righteous who need me to come save them because apparently they've got it all together. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the who. It's the sick. Jesus came to save sinners. That's who he came for. And by the way, that, that's all of us. We're all sinful people. Matthew 11 says, Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. What is Christ's demeanor? What is his um, attitude toward broken sinful people? He is gentle and lowly and humble in 
unique. Yes, he's the creator of the universe, the God who saves, but he sees sinful, broken people and says, hey, I came to rescue, I came to save you. He's gentle. Romans 5 teaches us that while we were still sinners, before we got our act together, because we never will, apart from Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is gentle and lowly towards sinners. So this woman clearly was living in light of who Jesus is. Notice when she came to Jesus, he wasn't like, ooh, get away from me, don't touch me, you're a sinner. No, he welcomed her worship because she's the kind of person Jesus came for. He came for all of us, but are you willing to recognize that you're a broken person and to live in light that Jesus came for broken people? I mentioned, I was gonna quote from this book, Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. And I, for me, it's gotta be on my top five list. Like if you, you should totally read this book. If you struggle with any of the things we're talking about this morning, you should buy this book as soon as the service is over. That's it. He says that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most, make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. That's why he came, to save sinful people like you and me. <clears throat> Am I living in light of that? When I live in light of that and recognize who he is, it stirs love for Jesus, amen? And I remember, fix my eyes on him, it stirs love for him. When I think of his love, stirs love for him. Thinking about his love, I think the greatest signpost, the greatest pointer to God's love, to the love of Christ in this passage is actually in the question that the people ask in verse 49, when it says, after he tells this woman, your sins are forgiven. And he says it, they are, it's emphatic, it's de declarative, they're forgiven. They say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Like, who does Jesus think he is? Who does he think he is that he can say your sins are forgiven? See, they, were, they would have been good Jews who understood that only a Jewish priest, after making sacrifice, after killing an animal, making atonement, could tell a person, hey, your sins are covered, your sins are forgiven. So they, they hear Jesus say emphatically, your sins are forgiven. It's a, it's a fact. How can Jesus say that? I don't think Jesus had just been at the temple. How can he say that? Jesus could say that because he knew that he would be the ultimate once and for all, final and forever sacrifice for our sins. He loved not just to the point of, hey, I forgive you. He loved to the point of, I'm gonna forgive you and it's gonna cost you my life. I left heaven's throne to come and die for you on a cross, but I will do it because I love you and I want to forgive you. How serious is Jesus about forgiveness and restoring your life and giving you hope and grace and mercy, serious enough to die for it. He delights in forgiving. And when you understand his delight in forgiving you, 
through his shed blood on the cross and resurrection, it stirs love in your heart for him. What leads to love for Jesus? Experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think now might be a good time to, to celebrate the forgiveness and grace and love of Jesus. We mentioned earlier we want to reflect and repent of sin, and I hope you've done that. And if not, you can stop now and talk with the Lord about some things you need to get right. But what an opportunity for us to celebrate the forgiveness of Christ on our behalf, to gaze on him. If you would go ahead and open the the bread side of that. As Jesus was gathered with the disciples, he looked at them, he, he broke the bread. Think about that picture of him breaking the bread apart. He told the disciples, this is my body broken for you. The idea that you're broken, sinful people, I'm gonna be broken for you so you can know salvation. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you would open up the other side. Jesus took the cup and he poured it out, knowing that just a few hours after that, his blood would literally run down that tree as he paid the price for our sins to forgive us, to bring us in a relationship with him. He said, this is the blood of my covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we are grateful for your blood. We're we're grateful for your body broken for us, for salvation, for forgiveness. And guys, we celebrate and fix our eyes on you. Would you teach us to delight in you, God, and to, to experience your love and forgiveness and that it would stir love in our hearts for you. God, that we would delight in you, that we would worship you, not so we can't be forgiven, but to know that we have been forgiven and therefore we worship. God, thank you for your sacrifice. Church family, as we we close this morning, we're going to have a moment of response in just a moment, but I would call to mind the words of John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor. At the end of his life, he looked back and he said, There's a lot of things I've forgotten, but I know this. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. I'm a great sinner. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. But Christ is way better than that. He's a way bigger savior than I am sinner. So praise be to Jesus. May we be a church that that is our declaration. May we love God and delight in God and worship and serve him with glad hearts because yes, we are sinners, but Christ is a great savior. And in just a moment, I'm gonna pray and there'll be some men down front. Maybe you've never been forgiven. Maybe you couldn't take the Lord's Supper because you don't know Christ. So you can know him this morning. You can be forgiven by simply turning from your self-righteousness, turning from your sin and turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I trust in you. Would you be the Lord of my life? Maybe this morning you need to, to come to talk with one of, those men, one of the men that'll be down here in a minute about trusting Jesus. Or maybe you would like to come and just pray and say, you know what, I, I kind of lacked love for Jesus. Maybe some of those questions we walked through, maybe those things have been stifling your love for Jesus and you just want to come and talk with one of these men and say, would you pray for me that I would 
that God would stir my love for him. Maybe even in your chairs, we sing in a moment, you should just ask God to give you a love for him to remember his forgiveness. Maybe you're looking for a church to join, to be a part of the family. We're a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church. This would be a great church for you to come to. Maybe you know the forgiveness of Jesus, you love Jesus, but you never obeyed him in baptism. And these gentlemen here in a moment will love to talk with you about what it means to be baptized. I'm gonna pray for us, then we're gonna stand and sing and respond. Jesus, we're grateful for your love and your forgiveness. God, would you draw people to yourself? Would you save some this morning? God, for believers, would you stir our love for you, our heart for you, as we remember your forgiveness, that we would daily walk in light of who you are? And God, maybe those that just need a church home or to be baptized, would you give them boldness to respond? It's in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.